Please be seated and uh, our young people are now leaving us, so push. So year seven upwards are welcome to go. We pray for them as they go, Lord, go with them, go with their leaders and helpers. Again, we declare fresh encounters with the living God as they talk about you, as they worship, as they ask their questions. Lord, make yourself known to them. We declare this in Jesus' name. Amen. This first reading brought to us by Lynn. Our Old Testament reading is taken from the book of the prophet Joel, chapter 2, beginning to read from verse 23. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer and the cutter. My great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Then afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Thieves, ropes, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home, justified, rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Please be seated. Just just before I start my talk, I just felt two words. Um, one is arthritis, and the other one is somebody having or someone who's got a metal plate and has been giving them some problems and pain. So as I speak, you might want to just check it out, but also you might want to go forward for prayer ministry after the talk. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that your word is the truth and eternal it stands. And Lord, may we hear your voice. Give us ears to hear from you, not from the speaker, but from you. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, our reading today is from Joel, but I'd just like to, to try to be almost like a a movie director here, probably Song Yang and Dave would laugh, but you know, often when you watch a movie, they tend to give you like a little trailer, a trailer, almost like a preview that has almost nothing to do with the actual title of the film, but gives you a sort of background to what the person or the hero you're coming to meet. So the name Joel means the Lord is God. Not much is known about his personal life, Again, there's not much about him in written the Bible. There are only 12 known Joels in the Bible that's quoted, but he is not one of those that we know about. But we do know that, but time, because we do not know much of him, the timing of when he actually lived and gave his prophecy is quite difficult to be um, correct or accurate about. But most theologians think it's between the late 8th to the early 5th um, century before Christ. But there's always there's also a good possibility means that he lived during the time of King Uzziah. Many of you would remember the name or know the name King Uzziah from reading Isaiah because it was when Isaiah received his call. He says, you know, it's the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on the throne high and exalted. That is often what sticks in our head when we think of Uzziah. But if Joel wrote this prophecy during the time of Uzziah, the background is that during the the time of King Uzziah was the second most prosperous time in Israel's history. Obviously, King Solomon was the most prosperous time for Israel. In every aspect, there has been expansion of the kingdom, militarily, administratively, commercially, economically, and his fame, you know, in the Bible it says his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. It spread far and wide, his fame. And it was also a time of peace and prosperity. But this is only second to the time of Solomon. But during this time of peace and prosperity, the hearts of the people of Israel turned. They turned from God and they started becoming self-sufficient. They're becoming... They're, eyes were drawn towards other idols because they wanted to be like other people. 
and they turn into the spiritual health of Israel become a spiritual poverty, idolatry, and religious formalism. And therefore, you will hear during that period of Israel's trouble, lots of prophecy that God will judge the nation. So that's the trailer put aside. But obviously, Joel, in his prophecy, gives us a very vivid description of the judgment of God about the devastation that's to come. Nation will be rising against Israel. They will come and take them away. The crops will fail, famine, you know, hence the use of word locusts and caterpillars, all their famine will, will come and wipe out everything their work, their hands have worked towards. And secondly, he also talk about the army, even though Israel has been invaded many times, but they've never had one army that was so powerful that would actually take them all away. And you will also read that a lot of prophets were prophesying saying, God will not allow that to happen. But in fact, they were not speaking for God. So a marching army will come and take them away. And that marching army was the army of Babylon. I'm just going to ask you to just close your eyes as I read three sentences, one from, it's a starting sentence from each book. Just as I read them, just think of what comes to your mind. And the first, David, if you could take the first slide. And the first one is, once upon a time. And the second slide, the younger one might know this, a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. And the third, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. These are quite iconic books or films that many may have read, and it instantly triggers a thought in our head. In the novel, The Plague, by a French author, hopefully I pronounce his name correctly, Albert Camus, a character spends most of part of his life searching for the perfect sentence, opening sentence for a novel. And once he had that sentence, he had the full book as a derivation of the opening. But the reader, to understand and appreciate the first sentence, will have to read the entire book. This, I believe, is something that he borrowed from the Bible. Because the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God. And it invites us, the reader, deeper into the whole book in order to fully appreciate its significance and impact in our lives. In the beginning, God. So first and foremost, it is a reminder to us that God is the one who is, was, and will be the eternal I am. He never changes. Second, it reminds us that God is the Lord over history. Does anyone remember the Reader's Digest? Okay. There was an article in August 1988. You can see a picture of there. And for those who are very, very good 2020 eyesight, you might see one of the stories, the title of the story I'm going to read. It was a story of a 12-year-old boy living just outside of Florida. And this was probably back then not as... Florida wasn't as built up as now. Even now, as you know, Florida, there's a lot of swamps about. And this boy, one afternoon, was playing in the woods with his dog, and suddenly there was a searing pain in his foot. 
He looked down and he immediately saw the massive head of a rattlesnake, an eastern rattleback, east rattlesnake, that had attacked him and just latched onto his shoe and bitten him through his shoe. Some time later, the father found him lying unconscious in the kitchen of their home. Recognizing what has happened, the father put the boy in the car to drive him to the nearest clinic. Along the way, the car broke down. So the dad had to flag down someone to stop. So a Haitian farm worker in a pickup pulled onto the shoulder, took the boy and the father, went to the clinic. By the time they arrived at the clinic, the doctor says the only hope for him is to send him to the hospital, which is several more miles away. By the time they got to the hospital, somehow the boy was still alive, but only to be told by a team of doctors to say that he has no chance of survival because the amount of venom that has gone into his system was just far too much. But for several days, the boy lie motionless, but still alive, in the hospital. But to the surprise of everyone, he opened his eyes several days later. And the doctor was telling him how fortunate he is. And the boy said, I knew I would not die, because when the snake bits me, and I tried to walk home, I couldn't, I fell. But a man in white robe came to me and said, you will be unwell for some time, but you will live. And that man lifted me up and carried me home. But the father said to the doctors, well, I think he's just probably, you know, hallucinating because we do not go to church, we are not believers. But the boy insisted that it was Jesus that he met. So no matter what the doctors or the father tried to say to him, there's one boy in America that was convinced that God carried him. Most of us will not experience the sort of a miracle as dramatic as that boy. Maybe we might have. But at the same time, we have experienced the intervention of God in our lives and equally convinced that he exists and he has touched you. And that's why the song... The goodness of God rings true for so many of us. It's so familiar that all of my life, you have been so, so good. We believe that God is omniscient, that he's all-knowing. Therefore, that means we believe that he knows that we will be here today, seated at that very, very seat that you're sitting now, that he, will be, he has seen and know that you'll be here. So God has a plan for each one of us, I'm sure we, we know that already. But each of those plans is for the individual, but also he has a plan for the nations and the world and the church. I love how David summarizes about God's thoughts towards us. And he, some, he writes in Psalm 138 verse 18, what, sorry, 139 verse 18. Were I were to count them, which is God's thoughts, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. Which just makes, makes us think that God is thinking of us almost every moment. Every, no matter how much you can, how small a decimal you can divide time in, that very moment of point of time, He is thinking of you. He has thoughts of you. We are constantly in God's thoughts. However, as in the Bible and throughout human history, we are prone to wonder from God. We can see that how 
you know, sin has continued to invade our lives, impact on the world, and we wonder from him. And as the hymn writer writes, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Which brings us back to the tax collector and the Pharisees. The Pharisee in Jesus' parable say to themselves that they are self-sufficient in their own righteousness. But we know we are not, thankfully, because we needed Jesus. But the Pharisee felt they don't. They are self-sufficient. The tax collector, on the other hand, recognises their need of mercy, which is why we are here. We recognise our need of mercy and we recognise that we need Jesus in our lives. There is a peculiar trait unique to our God, unlike any other religions or any other gods. Well, there are no other gods because they're all man-made. There's only one God. And there's one peculiar trait to our God. That even he is the one who chastises those he loves, but at the very same time, he longs and do restore us. And he restores us not only to our earlier position, he restores us to a better position. It's his promise in Romans 8.28 that he will work all things together for good. But remember, the promise is for those who love him. So if you don't know Jesus, that promise that he will work all things together for good will not apply to you. God will still, by his common grace, make things work and well for you. But his promise to make things, all things work is for those who love him. And his promise again is showed in Joel when he says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. But I do like how the King James Version actually says, I will restore to you the years the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. It gives a better picture of complete devastation. But God will restore, and the word restore is restore us to a shalom, wholeness, completeness. And his reference to the years, it literally means something that is repeated again and again. So we can be sure that God's restoration is continually. Because if you remember, the tax collector actually asked what he re- recognized was his need for mercy. And in Hebrews 4.16, Hebrews says that, yes, we've got a high priest who is in touch with who we are, and we can approach the throne boldly. But we approach the throne boldly, not because we want to badger him with our request. First, we approach him to receive mercy, and then we find grace. So our need for mercy never stops. So he will restore us. And the restoration to us, I believe, is not only just in our wealth, but it's also restoration between our relationship with our family, our health. It's restoration in every area because it's shalom. It just not means peace. So it's in every area. It includes restoration of our soul. And I believe that even if you're unwell today, God can restore you to your full health. You just think of the... Old Testament characters, a couple of them that went through great trials like Job and Joseph, God restored them to an even better position. 
just reading from Psalm 1 to 6, verse 1 and 2, this is when, you know, the Israelites, after having been exiled for 70 years, when they come back to Israel, what do they say? They sing, they sang, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So when God restores us, it is for his glory. Would you like to be restored? In your work, maybe you want to be restored to a formal position of favour like you had before. A relationship maybe between the father and the son, mother and daughter, between families, in your finances. Maybe you have wandered away from God and you'd like to be restored back to him to have that first love encounter. I'll give you a story of a restoration of a relative of Judith, Judith's aunt, Ida. Her name is Ida. Ida is a Christ, was a Christian, and she married Harold, a non-Christian. And in order to keep the marriage, Harold obviously said, well, I don't want you to be going to church. So Ida felt that she should be faithful to the husband and stayed away from church or the time they were married. And in the last few weeks before Harold died, he was dying from cancer, the faithfulness of God shone through. God not only restored Ida when she, when after Harold died, Ida went back to church, but God restored, in a sense, Harold in the last few days before he died. He prayed to receive the Lord to be his saviour. So the restoration for Ida was her husband becoming coming to know the Lord. And when Ida started going back to church, the Lord spoke to her and she was so touched that God still remembered and is going to restore her and bring her back everything that she felt she had lost over the years. And it's as if there was never that gap. So his restoration goes beyond just for us as individuals, but also for the nation. That's why we have the second part of Joel, where he says, then Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This prophecy obviously was quoted by Paul on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And the promise was for them but it has continued up to today and will continue until the day of the return of Jesus. That means God has poured out his spirit and he will continue. So all we should do continue to lift our eyes and to know there are better things to come because God is at work. Remember the promise to Abraham from God. God said that he will bless Isaac which we think, yes, God will bless Isaac, which is Israel and the church, but God also promised to bless Ishmael. So therefore, I, I believe that God would one day turn the eyes of the Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael, back to him. And with the restoration of Israel, we know that Israel is not yet restored because up until now, as Paul says, a veil is still covering their eyes. But... God has promised to restore. And as Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, it says, there has not failed one word of all his good promise. 
And if God has given you a promise, if God has given you a word, just be sure, be confident, be assured that he will never fail one word that he has spoken to you. The older we get, the more we need somebody bigger than we are to restore what we have lost. In Prince Caspian, in C.S. Lewis, he gives us a magnificent illustration of this. It's a little short conversation between Lucy and Aslan. Lucy has just come face to face with Aslan, and Aslan said, Welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered Aslan. Not because you are, replies Lucy. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So God has promised that when we find him, it is not that everything around us has changed, but that we have become new. The old way of looking at things is gone. At the start of my talk, I referred to the first sentence of the Bible that invites the reader to dwell deeper into the whole book to appreciate its significance and impact. And the Bible concludes with just one word, Amen, let it be so. And in the conclusion, it's conclusion after a book in the book of Revelations, which many of us, when we read, always think that it's such a horror book story of wars, death, plagues, pestilence, especially in the last couple of years when we've been through coronavirus, everybody thought this is the pestilence, one of the judgments from God, and now we've got the war in Ukraine. So it could be very much a horror story. And yet, at the end of it, John could happily, with joyful, you know, singing in his heart almost, to say, yes, Lord, even come now. Is it because the reason he could do this is because he saw something better. He saw something brighter. He saw God's final promise. And God's final promise is that he will bring us to a new heaven and a new earth. Dave and Matilda Armstrong introduced me to a song on YouTube. The video was two little cute young Filipino brothers. They were singing with such passion. So I do encourage you to just go on YouTube to try and Google them. But I'll just read the words of the song. David, the next slide, yeah. As I end my talk. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through to the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. Amen. And Victor, um, 